0: an Anxious Poets podcast mini-series. On the cusp of two realms. Synchronicity, the interleaving of our inner and outer worlds. Episode 2, Arriving in Magic. This rough magic I here abjure, and when I have required some heavenly music, which even now I do, to work mine end upon their senses that this airy charm is for, I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. Hello. Hello. I'm Adrian Scott. I am the Anxious Poet. Those words are from The Tempest. They're the words of Prospero. And he talks in them of rough magic. If you know the story of The Tempest, Prospero was... um, An aristocrat who was betrayed by his brother and exiled onto an island full of noises and sounds and a monster called Caliban with his daughter Miranda and through synchronicity the brother who betrayed him and all his courtiers are washed up in a storm at the beginning of the play onto that very island. And Prospero, who has an ability to work rough magic, um, has conjured all this up. And he has a spirit who supports him called Ariel. And during the play he begins to realise he's got to let go of this rough magic that actually he is not the author of it. He is the servant of that magic. And in that speech, this rough magic I hear abjure, I let go. I will break my staff and drown my book. So this episode, I wrote my second collection of poems around the time when I started going to David White's salons, those gatherings during the year that I mentioned in the first episode. And and at those salons, um, David quoted a poem quite liberally and regularly by Goethe, the German poet. And I used the poem, a bit of it, as um, an introduction in my book now arriving in magic flying and finally insane for the light you are the butterfly and you are gone and so long as you haven't experienced this to die and so to grow you are only a troubled guest on the dark earth i understood the first bit of the magic flying insane for the light i don't think at that time i understood the dying and so to grow bit, it it came later. But I still would stick by the revelation that I had at that time that there is rough magic, as Shakespeare calls it. There is a kind of magic, as Queen called it, everywhere. How did I find this out? Well, I went to Tuscany. Um, David, on one of the salons, said to me, why don't you come on my Italy tour? A good bit of marketing on his part, because it's not cheap. You'll love it. Because I'd said to him, oh, it's my 20th wedding anniversary coming up. And he was like, come on the Italy tour, bring your wife, she'll love it. Um, it's it's a magical trip. So I went home and I said to Wilma, you know, this sounds amazing. Um, and then she saw the price and was like, it would need to be amazing. Um, but I I think again something in the synchronicity of that moment, she seemed to realise that there was something deeper going on than just hero worship, and we looked into it and decided instead of spending the money that we'd saved on double glazing for the house we'd go to Tuscany and off we flew we landed in Florence um, at the airport in the early evening and stayed in this Lovely hotel in the centre of Florence. When we woke up in the morning, we went to the restaurant, and it had a three hundred and sixty degree uh, window, and it we were right in the middle of Florence. You could see the Duomo, you could see everything. That all that there was lovely terracotta tiled roofs and the Arno, and oh, it was just wonderful, magical, uh, and we were to meet up with David and the tour that afternoon in a car park outside of Florence. So off we went in the morning after breakfast, wandering Florence, living in um, a sort of dream really. It was just so lovely. The sunlight was beautiful. The artwork was beautiful. Um, It was room with a view without doubt. And Wilma started saying to me, why don't we just stay here? why are we going on this trip with all these people when we could just stay here? And I remember thinking, maybe she's got a point. And she also said to me, look, I'm not going to join in with all this poetry stuff. I don't really like poetry that much. I brought a load of my own books. Uh, I'll probably stay in my room and read. So anyway, we get up to this car park. There are four minibuses and a phalanx of people. Um, from all over the world, mainly American, uh, all chattering and gibbering and, 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 you know, that whole buzz of nervousness when you start a trip. And uh, there was David and uh, a guy called Mihal O'Sullivan and his brother, um, who I got to know pretty well, uh, Owen. And off we drove up to this place outside of Florence uh, in the countryside of Tuscany. And we came to this beautiful villa in a, a vineyard and an olive grove. We were taken to our suite of rooms, and it was just stunning. And in fact, Wilma never read a book, I don't think. In fact, quite often I'd go to bed and she'd still be up talking. It was, David managed to create, and manages to create, a certain magic in these trips. They are expensive, but they are uh, worth it. They were worth it for us. Because somehow he takes very ordinary things. We do a lot of walking. Owen and, and, and Michal, he was nicknamed Moley at the time, sing every morning, just beautiful music, from plain chant to folk, Um which allows a lovely atmosphere to develop in which then David shares poetry, then you're split up into, into pairs and you talk to someone else and everyone is on the sort of pilgrimage that it was all about harvest because it was in September and all the, um, all the vineyards were hanging with grapes and just this rich conversations and then the food, he had someone come and cook for us. Very ordinary Tuscan food, but just gorgeous. Lovely wine. There was It was just the countryside of Tuscany, which is imbued with all the Etruscan, that's the pre-Roman culture, then the Roman culture, and then Italian culture. It was incredible. Um, and we we're told we were going on a walk one morning, the boys had sung, we were all in a good frame of mind, beautiful day, and we were off for a walk um, to a place called Panzano. And and we'd said to a couple of the other van drivers, who I realised became aware that they were guides um, in the way that I've become a guide on his Lake District tour, we were saying what we're we going to do, what what you know, what's on the agenda, what's the itinerary, and a guy called Troy said, "Don't worry about that. Don't don't think about what's coming. Just enjoy it. Uh, things change day by day depending on the weather, so you just go with the flow." So we were like, "Oh, okay." So we're walking along, and we there was a whole thing about fitness. You know, how fit are you? Make sure you've done a bit of walking. And the walks weren't that difficult, but believe me, on the lakes they are. Um, off we're, we're trotting, we're way ahead, uh, with a, a lovely one called Laurie, who is another helper on the trip, um, who lived there for years, and um, I think introduced David to a lot of the people that, that you meet. So we're walking along, and there's this... Lovely grove of trees, and suddenly from out of these trees appears this six foot odd guy in like white, chef's whites, and and those check trousers, and he's holding this huge flagon, of wine. You know the the wine bottles covered in wicker, uh, and glasses in his hand, and he's beckoning. And you know when you think, who's he talking to? It can't be talking to us. And then it's suddenly dawned us: yes, it was us. And he's beckoning us. And he's pouring the wine, he's handing it to us, and then there's this great big table spread with food, uh, and and <laughs> there were slices of bread, Italian bread, with what looked like cheese on them, and a couple of the Americans were like, oh look cheese, and he was like, no no no, it's pork pork fat, pork dripping, oh I love dripping, and they were like, oh my god, it's cholesterol on bread, um, but it was gorgeous, and it was flavored with um, herbs, and I said to him, where are the herbs from, and he just Knelt down on the ground and picked time from the ground, and he said, "This, this, this everything comes from the Tuscan ground." Uh, and he was called Dario, and he was a local butcher, and he was amazing. and And he was with his fiance, and he was saying, "Next week, I'm going to get married on this spot uh, to my fiance." So then David recites some great poem about marriage, and everyone is moved. He, Dario's crying. is fiance is crying it's just magical incredibly magical feels like been in a film and then we walk into the town he says to us follow me into town he drives off in his Land Rover uh, come to my shop so we go to his shop which is like the old style butchers that you would have seen in Sheffield in the 50s and and he starts reciting Dante. He gets on the, the counter of, of the shop and recites, and there's a little bust of Dante. He starts reciting Dante. And I said to him, are we in a film? This is just unbelievable. Um, and that's how the week went on. And we realised, and, and, I, and I put it in the first poem which I've subsequently edited of Arriving in Magic, Uh, and I'll tell you why later. Um, Magic, this magic, the poem's called Arriving in Magic, this magic is the fierce embrace of all that makes up our life's course, uttered bold in faith to the deep unsleeping witness of the dark. This magic is the fierce embrace of all that makes up our life's course. And I... I began to realize on this trip that there is magic all around us. And Wilmer and I started to say to ourselves, "Why don't we notice this anywhere else? Why are we suddenly alerted to it on this trip? Maybe partly because we paid a lot of money, maybe partly because of, you know this was an, a well-known poet. I don't know what it was and And because of Tuscany, which is stunning, absolutely stunning I mean it just all looks like a postcard, but we realized there was a bit more to it than that and and kind of vowed that when we came home, we'd look for it at home we we sort of had this intuition: home must be full of this too and and I wrote a piece about that uh that that meeting with Dario, um, called Married Again. And here it is. (music) The bright Tuscan hills lay in checkered vineyards as the path spread before our feet. Walking into the 21st year of marriage, recalling to us the Isle of First Consent, when ahead, and unlooked for, a figure, aproned, approaching, beckoning and biblical, opening his strong earthen face and hands, overwhelming any doubt that we were called to the spreading bride-white forest table. He, Dario, the local busher, exuding unbridled invitation, like Jesus fresh from the resurrection, drew our company from the path to a glade in which he was to marry in a week's time. Offering soft bread with timed lamb, pouring the Tuscan red clemency our watery hopes made wine, our hearts extending beyond the fences of what normally would hem in our life. And then he went before us into his own Galilee, Panzano, his shop a white-tiled grandfathered gift, In the corner, an old statue with a bare man's chest, a butcher's apron and a great bull's head. Dario steps up onto his butcher's block atop the white counter's cliff. Dante's canto springs from him like an oratorio, all sweeping arms and passion. And the story, Francesca and Paolo's forbidden love, rich like strong meat, a weeping butcher in the second circle of hell after we stood amazed, dared by this man of earth to enlarge the compass of our appreciation, married again to soil and beast, soul and sorrow, dust and death, blood and life, knowing ourselves to be consummated. And this renewed marriage, more beguiling than the first, daring us to believe in the wonder of our own walking. And this renewed marriage, more beguiling than the first, daring us to believe in the wonder of our own walking. It, uh, it really did alert us to the wonder of our own walking in Sheffield. When we came back, we realised we live in a magical place. We live in the Riveland Valley. It's just a different kind of beauty. And the encounters that we had with people like Dario, we realised we had encounters with extraordinary people all the time at home. Um, and it, it woke something up in us. It was definitely one of those moments when you were on the cusp of the inner and the outer worlds. And something inside you, I think by that landscape, was awoken, was alerted, was activated, was challenged. That magic is the fierce embrace of everything that makes up your life's course. And by everything, I meant the darkness too I intuited that that was true but I'm not sure I really understood it at that point but it was there, I did understand it and the poem I wrote, Arriving in Magic uh, the the last part of it was quite arrogant uh, I now realise um, it was the, the final stanza I, 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 for my uh the next year was my uh, 50th birthday and I had a ring made a red ruby ring uh, designed like the ring that gandalf wears naya the ring of fire <coughs> and i was feeling full of my own importance and my own abilities as a writer as well which i was developing so the last stanza said, the ring you place upon my finger. And, and bear in mind, I'd done a, a sabbatical, a six-month sabbatical, where I stopped doing a lot of the work I was doing, because I was exhausted. And I was lucky enough to be able to afford to take a bit of time off. I didn't go anywhere. Uh, I just stayed at home, but I literally stayed at home um, and, and had lots of, of time alone, I walked the Cumbria way, I went to Lawn where Dylan Thomas came from, and I worked on this collection of poems, and and especially this arriving in Magic One. So this, this last stanza, The ring you place upon my finger is a vow to grasp the magic in which gladly I now arrive, knowing too it was always there, waiting quietly in the trees beyond, with the wizard that is the forest, and inside the dragon who is me, the magician I have come to be grasping the magic the magician i have come to be I was very influenced by a book called king warrior magician and lover by um, doug gillette and robert moore that talked about the archetypes the jungian archetypes and especially what they referred to as the male archetypes king warrior magician and lover and i saw myself i'd always been taken with gandalf and merlin um, and i i saw myself as um as a magician, and I grew my hair and my beard, had this red ring. I've got it in front of me now, um, on my finger. Only after I'd had a breakdown, which I'll describe more in the next one, night sea journey, did I realise that that the archetypes are, that that are there, they are primeval powers or forces or energies that we, according to Jung, inherit as human beings, we inherit their energies. We're like conduits that those energies flow through, but they don't belong to us. If you ever read any Greek mythology, you'll realize that you know, these archetypes were often, were often uh, incarnated in the gods. And human beings who have too much contact with the gods don't usually come off very well. I thought that I would become a magician, that I would become this force, and be able to control. You know, I I, I remember saying to my spiritual director at the time, uh, just before I had my good old crashing breakdown. He said to me, how are you feeling? I said, I feel at the height of my powers. I should have known. (laughs) I should have known. But uh, I now would rewrite that poem and have rewritten that poem about the magic that I'm here to serve. That if I'm fortunate and put myself in the service of the right uh, energies will flow through me at times and then leave again Uh, and I am I. we are just human beings and that is what that quote at the beginning of this podcast was all about this rough magic I hear abjure and he breaks his stuff he lets it go partly he lets it go because it's worked it's magic and he has forgiven all the people who hurt him and then he says um, that that this this creature of darkness, Caliban, I now own because it's his darkness, too, his shadow. He's abused Caliban, and he needs to make reparation to him. Uh, and I'll come back to some of that again. So, in this experience of magic, I was learning all sorts of things, um, and. One of the things that I, I think I learned, and I don't think I've ever shared this poem uh, on a podcast before, was called it was called mendicant. Mendicant given to begging or of or of denoting one of the religious orders who originally relied solely on arms. I did realise that this magic is a gift. And Sometimes, Jung talks about this, the language of the unconscious is slightly, uh, it it sometimes comes off as slightly high-blown, high-flown, grand language. And this poem is in slightly grand language, but it's saying something I think that I, I learned. Mendicant. I looked for a home and the earth raised up lodgings to house my unruved soul. I looked to find my way, a course to chart, and the sea lent myself ship the meniscus of identity. I looked for a helpmate, and the moon's curve slid down to me a spouse, to cut my life's exposure. I looked for a work, and the sun gripped my frame and warmed me to a ploughing task. I looked fearfully for what I'd lost or exiled, and the forest gave me its darkest, hardest truth. I took the hand of defeat as the harbinger of change and in that frightful clinch my emptiness was filled. One day I will look for rest and the chance to change this span for another and life will give me death. Don't presume this way is easy. To be mendicant, your hands must be always emptying, your skin always shedding. You walk in second innocence. You breathe each day as new. You renounce the chimera of control and make your heart a begging bowl. That's what I mean about the high-flown language. But, you know, it, it was saying, I remember David White once saying, when people say to you there's no such thing as a free lunch, it's the biggest lie of all. We've all had hundreds of free lunches from the moment we were born. We wouldn't be here if we hadn't. And... So much is given to us. I looked for a home and the earth raised up lodgings to house my own roof soul. From the moment I was born, my parents gave me somewhere to live, but gave me a, a home in themselves too. I looked to find my way and, and the sea lent the meniscus of identity. The meniscus is that uh, when, you, when you pour a drink and there's like a domed, uh, uh, tensile top to the water, that's meniscus the meniscus and, it, and it's what we float in uh, and somehow myself began to rise up and give me a sense of identity i looked for a helpmate and and i found one in wilma um, i looked for work and i found it i looked fearfully for what i'd lost or exiled and that was what i was beginning to do at this period what we lost what we lose or exiled is our shadow and the forest gave me its darkest, hardest truth. I don't think it had at the time. I'm still not sure it has, but, but it's certainly there. And, and I began to realise that defeat and loss were not bad things. And I'd learnt that from an early age. Losing my dad shaped my whole life. I was 11 years old. My mum had a breakdown when I was 16. It is the harbinger of change. And life will give us death at some point. And, and I realised that there was something, you learn magic, I'm just looking at an icon of St. Francis, the father of the poor it's called, and he's, he's sitting on the floor in his robes with a begging bowl. There's a synchronicity there, it just suddenly caught my eye. You walk in second innocence, you have to make your heart a begging bowl. Um, to find magic, you have to do a bit of emptying. You have to not think the most important thing for me is to be in control of everything that's going on. But let go and let life bring you. Let, In religious terms, it's called providence. I think in psychological terms for Jung, it's called synchronicity. Uh, synchronicity being, as we said in the first episode, a meaningful coincidence of two or more events where something other than probability than the probability of chance is involved. It's those confluences of events that our trip to Tuscany most definitely was where you feel that you're at that crossroads point and things are flowing around and in you that, that you just didn't expect. And... I think one of the, the, the great pieces of magic that we experience in our lives, and I certainly have, is this thing of inflation and deflation. Maybe St. Ignatius would call it desolation and consolation. But the ego is a bit like a balloon. It's, it's that conscious part of us that we're most aware of as we're growing up. Uh, um, it's more fragile part of us more easily insulted and hurt it, the ego is the eye it's the it's it's what we're conscious of <clears throat> before we realize that there's a whole other world inside us going on and and you know you, you see young young lads or girls you know they're trying to find out who they are and and and, and the tool they use is their ego um and the ego is looking for affirmation, it's looking for approbation, um, it, it's looking for that corroboration of the world outside itself, that it's okay. And some things you find you're okay at, they inflate you, and you only have to look at celebrities, who especially a celebrity who suddenly become famous. There's a huge inflation goes on. And then, of course, at some point, there will be a balloon-bursting moment, a deflation. And that's true of all of us. Um, you realise that you're really good at something, but there will always be a collapse, a fall, a trip, a stumble that, that, that deflates that great balloon. And, you know, that's it's important it's really important because it begins to connect you to the inner world where there's a lot more going on. I, I'm not expressing this very well, but I'm going to read you a paragraph from Jung. Uh, in a book called The Essential Young His Selected Writings and, and there's a, a, a chapter called The Confrontation with the Unconscious which is what happens when we begin to be inflated and then deflate it begins to make us descend into the unconscious or the unconscious erupts into our life and we have to confront it and this is what he says Actually, I do not believe it can be escaped, this confrontation. One can only alter one's attitude and thus save oneself from naively falling into an archetype and being forced to act apart at the expense of one's humanity. Being forced to act apart at the expense of one's humanity. Possession by an archetype turns a person into a flat, collective figure a mask behind which they can no longer develop as a human being, but becomes increasingly stunted. One must therefore be aware of the danger of falling victim to the dominant of the manner personality, the archetype. The danger lies not only in oneself becoming a father mask, but in being overpowered by this mask when worn by another. Master and pupil are in the same boat in this respect." I mean, it's not an easy passage, but it's what I'm talking about. You, if if you become too associated with an archetype, with a work, you know, with something that you're really good at, there is a danger that you become this, this, uh, that it becomes a mask, behind which you can no longer develop as a human being, and and I can give practical examples of this. Having trained for the priesthood and done a lot of spiritual direction with clergy, there's a huge danger in the role of the priest. Priesthood is an archetypal force. And I've watched people be subsumed by that role, by the dog collar, by what other people project onto the archetypal force, onto that mask and they begin to lose their humanity. They no longer seem able to, to be human, to be warm, to be adaptive, to sometimes even have a sense of humor. Um, and, and you see it in all kinds of other places. You see it with um, celebrities, you see it with prime ministers. Um, it's It's a dangerous confrontation that, that happens within you and, and I really like that Jung is naming that and challenging us to to deal with it um, and the last Tuscany poem in the book was I think where I began to intuit something was going on in me uh, that was deflating and that was challenging and um, the poem is called Falling and on the final day of the uh, or the penultimate day of the Tuscany tour we were told we were going to be walking for quite a long way and we were going to Laurie who I mentioned earlier to her house for a barbecue and we'd have a sing and it'd be lovely and the all the vineyards were just about to be harvested and they were all surrounded or a lot of them with electric fences to stop the deer getting in and eating all the lovely grapes and we had to go through one of these fences at one point and someone had propped open the, uh, the two horizontal wires and you had to sort of step through uh, bending over and and a bit a bit like um, a limbo dancer get through these wires i was the last to go through and i tripped caught the stick and fell onto the fence and it was like a horse kick it it absolutely shocked me it was painful and I, and cuz i landed with my full weight i couldn't get off it quickly when i finally got off it I've, I've, I was really shaken and, and electrified. And my wife said to me, because I'm a good fainter, you're not going to faint, are you? You're not going to have a heart attack. And I was like, well, I wasn't, but now you mention it. Um, and I just felt so embarrassed and, and 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 just wanted the ground to swallow me up, everyone to leave me alone and I'll be fine. And, and gradually they did. The next, the final day, we have a final circle where David asks everyone to reflect on how the week has been for them. And and it suddenly dawned on me that this thing uh, was, was huge. Um, and here's the piece I wrote, Falling. The Italian week uncurled like a tight-packed fern frond. Each day a new disclosure replicating an unlooked-for earthy Tuscan generosity. Yet in some cynical corner of your autobiographical memory, a pre-sentiment of that stomach-churning lurch, that upending rug pull endured lurking. Too many early losses, producing a canker of distrust, a balance sheet approach that says everything good will have to be paid for in a painful cleanage. As you slid down the hill on that final day, guard down, it happened. The electric fence protecting the ripe vineyard was propped open with a stick. You crouched and thrust a leg through the aperture of freedom, only to kick the stick and slip back hand and full weight on the horse kick of shocking current. You knew it immediately for the moment of retribution, the payment to the ferryman, body drumming with energy and embarrassment, your luck run out. Yet in the circle of reflection on the morning of departure you saw all the rug pulls in another light and a voice said, You know, there is great power in your falling. The providence of upheaval opened its generous hand to you, reworking the territory of the past, exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life. you know there is great power in your falling that came to me in that circle and it was the same kind of voice as the one I mentioned on the first podcast saying how would it be if you raised your family you tended your garden and then you died it had that same force, that same power it came from my unconscious, I'm certain um, from my deep self and um, from from another realm you know there's great power in your falling there's a powerful metaphor to fall onto an electric fence to be to find the power of falling and i remembered as as this as i was sitting in that circle and those words came to me you know being by lara's bed when she was in intensive care at great ormond street on a thing called ecmo where the blood in her was taken out of her body and oxygenated and put back in because she had this hospital virus and we were told that she could die at any moment because if she hemorrhaged they would have to turn the machine off there's great power in your falling I, i when the my boss the bishop said to me i'm I know that Laura might die but I've never felt closer to God than I do by her bedside. We both completely agreed. The veil was very thin between life and death at that moment. But we felt that presence. That that deep abiding presence of something other than ourselves. A power greater than ourselves. There's great power in your falling. It was a huge intuition and it began slowly i think to rejig my psyche i was feeling the intuition that that was about to happen to me um and not again hearing but not hearing not really understanding what that meant and probably in in the full flow of me thinking I was arriving in magic and I got my red ring on and I was going to be Gandalf, that, that there was some reflection to be done here, some silence to be held, some going into the forest or into your own cave, into your own cell and thinking, oh, hang on, what does this all mean then? What am I learning here? And this brings us back to Thomas Merton, someone who knew how to pause, how to go into himself, go into the inner world, but also knew how to be on the cusp of the inner and outer realms. This is a meditation from the same book as I mentioned last time, and it's called All the Moods of My Place. This morning at four, great full moon over Nally's hill, pale and clear, a faint mist hanging over the wet grass of the bottoms. More and more I appreciate the beauty and solemnity of the way up through the woods, past the bull barn, up the stony rise, into the grove of tall, straight oaks and hickories, and around through the pines on top of the hill to the cottage. Sunrise, hidden by pines and cedars on the east side of the house, saw the red flame of it glaring through the cedars, not like sunrise, but like a forest fire. From the window of the front room, then he, the sun, can hardly be conceived as other than as he, shone silently with solemn power through the pine branches. Now, after high mass, the whole valley is glorious with morning light and with the song of birds. It is essential to experience all the times and moods of this place, No one will know or be able to say how essential. Almost the first and most important element of a truly spiritual life, lost in the constant formal routine of divine offices under the fluorescent lights in choir, where there is practically no change between night and day. So he had left that fluorescent lit choir to join the choir of nature, Uh, To join the hours not celebrated by chanting in uh, a big church, but celebrated by walking through the woods and noticing the moon and the sun. Our lives are so crammed, even monks it seems, with noise and difficulty that that we have we've forgotten how to make that connection between the inner and outer world. And he seemed to have rediscovered it. Just the way he describes things, his knowledge of the trees, the names of the trees, the way he notices that the sunrise doesn't look like a sunrise, it looks like a forest fire. That comes from paying attention, from being out in the world of nature without agenda, just being there. Just walking through it. I found that walking the dog every day, doing the same walk, being in the same place, you begin to notice all the moods of what he calls my place, of your place, and to trust that that has an inner power that can deal with a lot of the stuff in our outer world. poem arriving in magic I talk about um, no more can I pass the gap that gates the path unnoticed stepping through towards mossy trees and fishes glimmer novice to the green flame in the bud and it reminds me of Bilbo in Lord of the Rings his walking song still round the corner there may wait a new road or a secret gate and though I oft have passed them by, a day will come at last when I shall take the hidden paths that run west of the moon, east of the sun. It's From the Road Goes Ever On, where he says it's a dangerous thing to go out of your front door. Who knows where the road might lead? And it, it that's that sense of magic, that right under your nose is all of this wonder there are people who you may have overlooked or, or not appreciated. There are things in the natural world around you that you may not have noticed because you've been caught up so much with your own inflations and deflations. And they, they there's a gate to a path unnoticed inside you. And it's about magic is about learning to notice and that takes time and silence and patience and then the providence of upheaval in the falling poem the providence of upheaval opened its generous hand to you reworking the territory of the past exposing that the presence in loss is the impudent sprouting of a new life so it's that creating that pressure cooker if you like to hold the temperature of your losses that that the providence of upheaval has opened and and to to keep them to meditate on them to, to meditate the wrong word almost to allow the alchemy of those upheavals to work inside you in concert with the world around you, noticing the many moods of the place where you live. And, you know, it's, people might say, oh yeah, well, you're really lucky you live in the Rivlin Valley. I also work in Fervale, uh, one of the roughest, rougher bits of Sheffield. And there's still beauty there. There's still trees. I lived in Poplar in East London. And it was the first time when I was a student, I noticed the the wonder of blossom because there were hawthorn and cherry trees on the streets and the blossom. I'd just discovered Vincent Van Gogh and his paintings and it alerted me the way he described painting uh, Pear Blossom, that it was so fleeting yet so beautiful. So the impudent sprouting of new life is all around us and little did I know at that time, that the providence of upheaval had more things to do with me. Um, there's such value in our falling. So to, to, to complete this second episode about arriving in magic, arriving in that magic that Goethe talks about, where he says, uh, let me find it, And as long as you haven't experienced this, to die and so to grow. To die and so to grow. It's that which I was talking about from the first episode, learning to die. You're only a troubled guest on the dark earth if you don't learn that lesson. So let's turn again to Mary Oliver, the great American poet. This is the title poem of the book, A Thousand Mornings. All night my heart makes its way however it can over the rough ground of uncertainties but only until night meets and then is overwhelmed by morning the light deepening, the wind easing and just waiting as I too wait and when have I ever been disappointed for the red bird to sing? All night my heart makes its way however it can over the rough ground of uncertainties. But only until night meets and then is overwhelmed by morning. The light deepening, the wind easing and just waiting as I too wait and when have I ever been disappointed for the red bird to sing. When have I ever been disappointed? She lived in that amazing poetic reality where that cusp between the inner and outer realms where you can hear it in that poem um, y- you can hear the inner world where she talks about the rough ground of uncertainties and then the connection with the outer world When it meets and then is overwhelmed by morning, the light deepening, she's noticing what's going on in the natural world, the wind easing and just waiting, as I too wait for Redbird to sing. That's when you know that the synchronicity of your life is at work, when that that marriage between the inner and outer worlds is consummated in some way by some deep synchronicity here's some last words from the Desert Wisdom book from a Desert Mother Amma Sincletica said in the beginning there is struggle and a lot of work for those who come near to God but after that there is indescribable joy It is just like building a fire. At first it's smoky and your eyes water. But later you get the desired result. Thus we ought to light the divine fire in ourselves. With tears and effort. Whatever your religious or spiritual leanings are. You might not uh, use the word God. But if you want to come near to that inner realm to that those energies that are greater than yourself then you have to accept the providence of upheaval and change and that you are going to encounter things in your inner realm that are disturbing you're going to encounter your shadow like like prospero at the beginning of this, um, this podcast, we had Prospero abjuring his rough magic. And, you know, on the island, he experiences all sorts of things, especially his own shadow, his own darkness. He's brought up short by the fact that he has tried to be a magician in a way that separated him from the understanding of his outer world, and he didn't notice that his brother was about to um, to overwhelm him, and exile him and his poor daughter. So he's on the island. He's, you know he's with his child. He's with Caliban, the dark shadow, uh, the 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 son of a witch, Sycorax. Um, he's with Ariel, his amazing spirit that he's released from an oak tree. Who cares for him? But he's also enslaved. He he says he will um, will give Ariel his freedom if he serves him, and he releases all those things at the end of the play. And is released by them. And this is what Amasimclitic is on about. Thus we ought to light the divine fire in ourselves with tears and effort. You know, uh, learning to love. The, the the natural beauty of one place, learning to be rooted in your landscape, the sense of place that we're going to come on to in the fourth episode of this podcast, the power of place, the power of place to root you in the inner world of your soul is so important. So it takes tears and effort, but then you get that impudent sprouting of a new life. And that new life comes from the often from the ashes of the old, the wreckage of the old even. These are Prospero's last words in the play, Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true, I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands, with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair, unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself, and frees all faults, as you from crimes would pardon be. Let your indulgence set me free. He's let go of all the archetypal power. And he says, you know, what strength I have is mine own, and it is a bit faint, it's most faint. And I've I've found release, I've pardoned and been pardoned, and now I must be relieved by prayer. Prayer being that... Recollection of soul sounds really pious, that doesn't it? And I don't mean it to. I'm trying to think of a more mundane way of saying it. That quietness inside yourself that you can create—it's sometimes created by grief when you lose someone. That becomes a, a sort of muffled quietness inside you where you find yourself just staring into space. It's that reverie. It's that, um, when I was a little kid, I used to sit staring out the window for hours on end. I loved it, just daydreaming. It's that, and and what I've noticed is, if I'm talking to a group and you mention that daydreaming, people almost start doing it. They start to get that long stare and remember what they were like as children. That's what I mean by prayer. It doesn't have to have anything to do with saying words or making petitions or any sense of of organised religion. It's inner stillness. It's inner space. That's, that's what makes you alert to magic. That's when you know that the inner and outer realms are beginning to wed themselves together so to end as i can hear the rain pattering on the window and autumn has brought its big drop in temperature on the 30th of september i want to end with this prospero our revels now are ended these are actors as i foretold you were all spirits and are melted into air into thin air and like the baseless fabric of this vision the cloud capped towers the gorgeous palaces the solemn temples the great globe itself yea all which it inherit shall dissolve and like this insubstantial pageant faded leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. poetry, anxiety and vulnerability. This is the Anxious Poets podcast.